12.08, good afternoon, Wisconsin, and merry day after Christmas. Jerry Bader in for Jeff Wagner once again, rest of the week. So I, I did some quick, super-duper quick research here because it's a fascinating story, and I have most of it committed to memory, but I didn't want to get it wrong. You heard the little feature there a couple of minutes ago about the this day in history, December 26, 1965, a tie-breaking game because the Colts and the Packers tied for the Western Conference record that year, 10-3-1. and So... Uh, and that's the NFL was just divided into the Western and Eastern conferences. So back in that time, they added a game. And it turned out to be one heck of a game between the Colts and the Packers. Two of the best quarterbacks in the game, Bart Starr, of course, for the Packers, Johnny Unitas for the Colts, they both got hurt. Most of that game was played without the two future Hall of Fame quarterbacks, but what the feature that you may have heard a few moments ago focused on was Don Chandler's kick that sent it into overtime uh, with just about two minutes left in the game. He tied it with a, with a field goal that to this day remains in dispute as to whether it was good because it was so high over the goalposts. They, the, the refs had a hard time telling Tony the official insists forever insisted that it was good. He, of course, made the call. But what gets lost sometimes is the NFL raised the goalposts to 20 feet. It's called the Chandler Extension because of that. Because it was so high, they had a difficult time telling. It was a weird angle for the kick and... It, it There was all of that controversy, but then, uh, as you heard a few moments ago, Don Chandler nailed one. I think it was from 25 yards, crystal clear down the middle, and the Packers would go on to defeat the uh, Cleveland Browns in the NFL championship game at Lambeau. Yeah, I, I'm tempted to guess at the score, but I'll probably get it wrong. What's in my head is 25-12, and I don't think that's right, but I think I'm really close. So anyway, very, very, very interesting game in Packers history. Especially, it's how often does that happen? Where you have, you know, that would be like, I, I don't know, Tom Brady versus Aaron Rodgers or Tom Brady, Drew Brees, you know, possibility in the Super Bowl. All of the discussion about the marquee matchup between Star, Unitas, Unitas, Star, and then uh, Star, I think, got hurt on the first offensive play of the game. Again, I'm not swearing to that uh, for the Packers, but I think that's right. And, and just, uh, you know, Tom Matty, halfback, ended up coming in for the Colts. Zeke Barkowski, of course, for the Green Bay Packers. But just a, a fascinating, fascinating game. Uh, what is that, 53 years ago? Wow. All right, I want to start this hour, and I'm going to be very candid with you. This is a sensitive, difficult subject to examine. So I'm going to attempt to be up to the task here, that this is a sensitive, difficult subject, and I'm going to try to handle it delicately. This story is from last week. Uh, I am told that Scott did not take up this story when he was in for Steve last week, and I... I don't know if other talk shows in the city took it up. There's no way of, for me to know that. 
but I'm going to take it up nonetheless. This is from midweek last week, Wednesday and Thursday, I believe is when it was in the news. The Kenosha Unified School District has begun an investigation after parents became concerned and assignment pinned blame on sexual assault victims for their own attacks. Today's TMJ4 had a story on this. Kyle, go ahead and fire up that audio. A Bradford High School sophomore tells me as soon as she read the first question on this assignment, she knew something didn't feel right. The first question on our sheet was what could Melissa have done differently to have avoided her sexual assault? The assignment was part of a class on mental health and sex abuse. What could she have done to have avoided her sexual assault? She didn't do anything, so it was shocking for us to like we didn't really know how to respond. Haven Eigenberger is a sophomore at Bradford High School. She says she and her classmates didn't say anything at first because they didn't think anything would be done. Eigenberger held off on doing the work and brought it up with her mom. So I was disappointed when I initially saw the question because it goes at it in the wrong way and it can actually trigger or re-traumatize somebody who's been through it. Charity Eigenberger shared the worksheet on Facebook Wednesday night. It has since been shared more than 11,000 times. She says Bradford's principal called her the next morning. Like Haven said, there's no excuses. He just said, you know, I'm sorry, kids shouldn't have had to face that question. Kenosha Unified School District says the assignment has been removed and they are reviewing their health curriculum. I was really pleased with how seriously Dr. Sinclair took it and that he dealt with it right away. Mary Joola, today's TMJ4. Here is the complete statement from the Kenosha Unified School District. Late on Wednesday, December 19th, the Kenosha Unified School District administration was made aware of concerns regarding a class assignment presented to students in health class at Bradford High on Monday. It would be Monday, December 17th. District administration takes concerns very seriously and immediately launched an investigation. In addition, Bradford was asked to promptly remove this assignment from use. The district will be doing a comprehensive review of the health curriculum covering relationships and dating violence, consent, and sexual assault to avoid future incidents. It was not the intent of the district or our staff to offend any of our students, families, or stakeholders, and we apologize for the concern this may have caused. Uh, today's TMJ4 online story also quotes Kate Trudell, who has a son in the district. It shifts the blame away from the assailant and on to the victim. It perpetuates rape culture and it has a damaging effect on female and male ability to report sexual assaults when they happen, which we already know we have a big problem with. So the concern here is to say that uh, a victim potentially could have taken steps to to use the word in the the way it was worded by the district's uh, instrument prevent the sexual assault on the other hand there are those that say that we actually put women in in greater danger if we tell them that there's nothing they can do to reduce the risk of sexual assault so what is the right answer i want you to give that some thought we'll be taking calls i'll have something more to say about it to be sure at the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, 414-799-1620, coming up, 1216 News Radio WTMJ. 
1219 News Radio WTMJ, Jerry Bader and for Jeff Wagner. The Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line 414-799-1620. I know this is a sensitive topic. Before we dig in deeper, let me go backwards here for a bit. Until the mid-1970s, it was the Dark Ages where sexual assault was involved in America. Women were often stigmatized. Women were often blamed for attacks and therefore were afraid to report them. There were some groundbreaking media events that changed that. A book called Against Our Will, which then spurred a landmark TV movie called A Case of Rape with Elizabeth Montgomery. That changed the landscape. But it's not always someone jumping out of the bushes. It might be someone that you think you can trust in your home. And cultural attitudes shifted. Where we understand victims are always victims. And attackers are always to blame for the attack. This is why there's so much controversy, uh, controversy excuse me, over students at Bradford High School in Kenosha last week. A week ago, this past Monday, receiving a worksheet asking to list four ways a sexual assault victim could have avoided her attack. A parent posted a picture of the worksheet on Facebook, drawing a lot of attention on social media and debate over the question's intent. And if it was appropriate, the Kenosha Unified School District released a statement, I believe, on Thursday, basically apologizing for that assignment. Here's the question I want to pose to you. I absolutely agree that great caution needs to be taken to make sure that it's never suggested that a victim of sexual assault, male or female, is responsible for the attack or is in any way to blame for the attack. That said, there are those who are concerned, and I happen to be one of them, that if we are so concerned about ever blaming the victim that we suggest that there aren't common sense steps that people can take to reduce the risk of an attack, to reduce the risk. My wife and I discussed this this morning, and she made a really good point. To broaden it beyond sexual assault, there are common sense behaviors you can adopt to avoid being a victim of crime. And I don't think there should be anything wrong with telling young girls or telling high school students there are steps you can take to reduce your risk. Now, here's the flip side of that. Here's what people would say. Well, it shouldn't matter. You should, you should be able to behave any way you want, and nobody has a right to take advantage of you. That's right. That's absolutely right. But... In the real world, is that a reasonable expectation that if you become intoxicated or if you put yourself in a situation, uh, a real-life, semi-hypothetical real-life example, going to an NBA player's hotel room with an expectation that he doesn't have an expectation, that doesn't make it right it's never right for one person to force themselves on another person. And when they do that, the attacker is always the person to be blamed. But do we also not have to take care? And again, I understand this is delicate. 
There are those who have made the argument that you put women at greater risk if you lead them to this false sense of security that because no one should ever take advantage of leverage in a situation that they won't. Well, you don't have a right to do that, so I can, in fact, drink far too much, be in the company of someone I don't really know, and be safe. No, you, you don't know that. And if that person takes advantage of that situation, they are to blame for the attack. But the often used, but I still think appropriate analogy, is if I forget to lock the doors of my house at night, and something happens to my family, well, I made it far easier for whoever did that than it had to be. I'm still the victim. My family is still, we are still the victims. And the reaction to this assignment in the Kenosha School District was, uh, I, I don't want to say abrupt, but they did act very quickly, and they were very clear in apologizing for this, and they are going to investigate to see if it was appropriate. Sometimes I think we have to thread the needle on these things. No, we don't want to create a situation or an assignment that blames victims of any crime. On the other hand, the notion that there aren't steps that people can take to reduce their risk of being a victim of a crime, I think that's wrong too. Now that said, I don't agree with the wording. I think one, I thought I saw, and I could be wrong on this, that it actually said, what could Melissa have done to prevent the attack? Well, you can never be sure that you're going to prevent a crime from happening. It just seems that we always go from one extreme to another. That we would, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, the instinct was to blame the victim, which was wrong, and now, the experience in the Kenosha School District, if we even suggest that women can take steps that could reduce their risk, and that's the way I think it should have been worded, reduce the risks of being a victim, because there are steps that you can take to do that. And I can think of any number of them. And don't head somewhere with a stranger where you're in a secluded area and you're vulnerable, don't drink to excess, I would argue carry mace. I mean, there are things you can do to reduce your risk, but ultimately, you are the victim and you are not responsible. But the problem I have here, one, I do have a problem with the way this was worded, but two, I have a problem with the notion that there's something inherently wrong with warning people that there are things they can do to lower their risk of being a victim of any crime. I know it's a delicate topic, but if you would like to weigh in on it, because I think this has been somewhat one-sided. Uh, the, the assignment itself, the way it was worded, I do have an issue with. But the concept that we can teach young women in high school who are going to become women, that there are ways to reduce their risk, I, I don't think that should be vilified. If you have any thoughts on this, 414-799-1620 on the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line, 1227 News Radio WTMJ. Fall, fall, high above. 
1235 News, Radio WTMJ, Jerry Bader in for Jeff Wagner. Taking your calls on the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line, 414-799-1620. Kenosha Unified School District began an investigation after parents became concerned an assignment pinned blame on sexual assault victims. It asked a hypothetical question, what could, uh, I think Melissa was her name, what she, what she could have done differently to uh, avoided her sexual assault. There was concern that pins the blame on the victim. No, that should never happen. And what the way I describe it, you shouldn't blame a victim. What I describe it, though, as risk reduction. I think there are things that we can instruct young women, behaviors that will reduce the risk of them being in vulnerable situations. That doesn't blame them. We still blame the attacker. That person is responsible. But are there things they can do and not just sexual assault, other things we can do to reduce our risk of being a victim of crime. The answer is yes, of course. And I think we can perhaps unintentionally do more harm than good when we're afraid to address that at all. And my concern is that's what might happen here. To Brian in Brookfield. Brian, you're on WTMJ. Hi. Uh, yeah, just listening to your show, I kind of think of it as uh, taking a de- defensive driving course. Uh, you, you, train, you get trained on... Um, you know, what to look out for and how to avoid situations. I think that's very important to address uh, in terms of sexual assault. And uh, it's not to blame the victim, but you don't want to put yourself in harm's way. And just concerning this test, perhaps there could have been a general disclaimer to start out the test or the worksheet saying that the victim is never to blame. Keep that in mind when answering these questions or how you interpret the question. I think that's a really good point. I think that that was, uh, Brian, thanks a lot for the call. Here's what I would say. I, I think this was worded poorly, and I think this did, the district or whoever did this, open themselves to criticism in the way this was worded, the way it was presented. Okay, He came up with the analogy of defensive driving. I think that's a pretty good one. The thing I thought of, actually just thought of this in the past few minutes, I can't 100% prevent myself from getting lung cancer. For reasons beyond my control, I may contract lung cancer. I don't know if it's contract, develop. Develop lung cancer. That might happen. I reduce my risk by not smoking cigarettes or other tobacco products. And I think we're missing something here. I have the presentation, yeah, I agree. A couple of texts on this, three of them to be exact. I totally agree with you. I agree the wording is off, but we should teach girls how to reduce the possibility of being attacked. Another text. I appreciate your wording of reducing the risk. That paints a very fair picture. Uh, next, uh, Michelle in Waterford. It's just like so many other situations in life. People just do not understand or accept any personal responsibility. Again, I'm not saying they're responsible for an attack ever. The attacker is responsible for the attack. But I don't care if it's keeping yourself safe in your own home, keeping your car from being stolen, or being sexually assaulted. There are behaviors in which you can engage that reduce your risk of being victims of those crimes, and I don't think we should be afraid to 
share those with high school-aged young ladies. To Joe in West Bend. Joe, you're on WTMJ. Hey there. Thanks for taking the call. Yep. Um, I, I think my my big point would be going back to the original Stranger Danger campaign and how much negative that actually ended up doing. Um, giving that false sense of security that it's a stranger that's going to abduct us, the stranger that's going to cause harm, it's the stranger that's going to create a sexual assault is just not true. And to your point, there's nothing wrong with taking preventative measures over something, even if you aren't at fault. If you get mugged in a good neighborhood, yeah, it's it's bad news, but statistically more likely when you go into a bad neighborhood and that's no different than this i've used that analogy in the past you know what i have said is uh, or let's just say a high crime area i have every right to wear an armani suit and rolex watch in a high crime area at midnight that doesn't make it a good idea right yeah, but exactly yeah you know i have that right joe thanks a lot for the call women have the right to not be attacked they do. Unfortunately, in some situations, they don't necessarily have that expectation. And we have to be real about that. And I would argue, while I do not agree with the wording of the assignment in the Kenosha School District, I think there has been an overreaction here that, in my opinion, can be unhealthy if the message that, that young women get is, there's nothing you can do to reduce your risk of being a victim of any crime. That's, we know that's not true. But we also do have to take great care not to turn the clock back to the dark ages when we did blame women for, for attacks and did stigmatize them. That was horrible. And it's been a 40-year process to move away from that. And we should take every possible step to make sure we don't go back to that. But I said possible step. Let's not delude people into thinking they can't reduce their risk of being victims of any crime. A couple of uh, further texts on this. Mike in Waukesha writes, I have an analogy. You can't 100% prevent your house from being broken into. You can lock your doors and windows, but a burglar can still get in your house by breaking a window. You can either have no windows or you can do what you can to deter would-be criminals or to reduce your risk. I, I, I think that is said perfectly. Uh, from the 414 area code, I totally agree with you, too. Everyone needs to be aware of ways, they say, to possibly avoid crime. I, I think the way to best state it is risk reduction. Things you can do to make yourself safer. And if that means watching how much you drink not putting yourself in a vulnerable situation with a stranger, yes, you can say, well, I should have the right to do that. I agree. I agree completely. In a perfect world, that is how it should work. And if something bad happens, you should not be blamed. You shouldn't as the victim. The perpetrator should be blamed. But that doesn't mean that those things aren't a good idea. And I would hope we could recognize both things here. And my concern is the reactions of this story is that we're not. One final uh, kick at this, if you want it, 414-799-1620-1242. News Radio WTMJ.
1245 News Radio WTMJ. Talking about the story, I'm going to get a, we have a couple of uh, calls that we're going to get to. Very interesting, all male callers so far on this. I did not anticipate this. It's the story of the Kenosha School High School assignment, if you will, that appeared to blame sex assault victims. What could they do to avoid it? And my argument is, I think that we can tell young women, or just people in general, so that there are things you can do to reduce your risk of being a victim of many different crimes, including sexual assault, and the way that you behave. That doesn't mean that if you, if you behave in a certain way and you're assaulted, it's your fault. Of course not. It's always the attacker's fault. But there are ways to reduce your risk of being a victim. Got having a, a text here from the 414. Hi, huge fan of your show. Thank you for that. This is about the Kenosha Unified School District school assignment. Why do we keep talking about it from one angle? Why are we now talking about teaching boys to be respectful to women and learn what is right and wrong? Well, I, I, I think that's a, a, a really good point. All right, we head to the phones. And a longtime radio listener of mine from my days in northern Wisconsin radio, Tim in Lublin. Merry Christmas, my friend. Merry Christmas to you, my friend. Good to hear you back on the radio. Hope to hear more of you in the near future. I think your point is has to be well taken in the sense that two things can be true about the same situation. A, no woman has the right to be attacked, raped, or sexually assaulted. But B, they have to be willing to realize they can reduce the risk of that situation. And both those things can be true about the same about the same circumstance. Uh, the example I always think of, someone who I don't agree with on anything else political, but who made this point quite virulently and got attacked for it was Chrissy Hines, the lead singer for the Pretenders. She admitted back in the 70s, I believe it was, when she was in her 20s, she was at a house party somewhere where there was a lot of drinking and drugs, and she decided to leave to go home, and when she went home, she was went home, she went home wearing nothing but her bra and panties, and a motorcycle gang saw her, realized she was incapacitated, attacked her, and raped her. And she even admits that she doesn't, she did not deserve that, but she put herself in that bad situation in terms of increasing the risk. So I think your point is that two things can be true about the same situation is something that all, all people have to acknowledge. Tim, I think you're exactly right. Thanks a lot for the call. Really good to hear from you again. And, and, and he's right. It, it's two things at the same time. Those monsters that did that to Chrissy Hine should, if they were caught, have been put away f- for decades. They, they are criminals. That was a horrible horrible crime no one ever deserves that no one should ever be blamed for that but as tim was pointing out even she conceded there were things she could have done to reduce the risk of that happening to todd in greenfield todd you're on wtmj well i'm glad that i got the call right after the last caller because you know we need to teach the boys you know how to act properly, but like Chrissy Hines, I have two. I'm an older father with two teenage daughters, and I went with my girlfriend to Liberty, Illinois, for a festival. And all the teenage girls, right down to 12 and 11 years old, were dressed unbelievably scantily, and they think it's fun, and they go around giggling, and all the boys are just like, "Oh my God, look at you know." It's how the girls can reduce the risk. It's how they dress these days in this culture. 
but I think it's very important, Todd, to, to put that back end on that Tim was talking about. What whatever the mm-hmm. the person responsible is the person who perpetrates the attack. Oh, I totally agree. But I'm just saying is in terms of some of the reduction. I just caught the yeah. end of this, and I don't know yeah. if it has come up with how the girls dress these nope. days. Okay. Yeah, and that, Todd, thanks a lot for the call. And that is, you know, here's the double-edged sword there. That's one of the things when I was referring to the bad old days when women were blamed and stigmatized. Well, look at the way she was dressed. She was asking for it. Nobody ever asks to be a victim of a crime, ever, ever. And without delving specifically into the how they dress, I think we should be able to tell, yes, absolutely tell young men, treat women with respect, despite bombardment of thousands of media messages to the contrary, which is very frustrating and I think is certainly part of the problem. Again, that's not, it's never to let the accused or the attacker, I should say, off the hook. Never, 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 never. But if we're going to be afraid to say that there are some common sense things that one can do to reduce the risk of one being a victim of crime, I think that's a mistake. 1250 News Radio WTMJ. 1253 News Radio WTMJ. Jerry in for Jeff. Wrapping up the topic of the controversy in the Kenosha Unified School District of an assignment that some people thought implied that the victims of sexual assault were being blamed by the question, what are four ways Melissa could have avoided the attack? I think reduce the risk of an attack is the proper way to state that, because, yeah, we should make sure that we never come even close to blaming a victim. No one asks to be sexually assaulted. No one deserves to be sexually assaulted. But I'm afraid that what's happening here with the blowback from this is that then we are going to be afraid to say to women, period, not just young women, and and really, quite frankly, people in general, that there's never anything you can do to reduce your risk of being a victim of crime, when clearly there is. Peter from the South Side texts in, You know, this topic is right on the spot. We need to start teaching these boys and young men how to treat women, but we also need to make stiffer laws. Most of these people uh, know you'll rape a woman. uh, uh, Let's see. uh, Okay, basically talking about a little long-winded in the text, but basically saying the sentences aren't severe enough, often in the cases of sexual assault. Look, uh, that is certainly an element as well to discuss and, and and I think that is that is an important part of the equation as well but we can't be afraid to have this conversation we can't be afraid to on the one hand say yes absolutely we do not blame the victim yet not be afraid to share ways I think particularly with high school young ladies, that there are behaviors that you can avoid that reduce your risk. That's true of almost every crime. Not all, but most. That you can, identity theft, 
regular theft, there are steps you can take. When, here's one final example on this. There is no perfect analogy. But my wife and I were in Europe this past summer, and I don't remember if this was in Switzerland or Austria. We were in both, and I don't remember which country we were in. It's all kind of a blur to me. But uh, one of the tourist destinations we went to, signs everywhere in multiple language, pickpockets, pickpockets, pickpockets. It's an area that was worked heavily by pickpockets. Why did they put the signs up? So you know. Because otherwise, you're not going to know. You're not from that country, let alone that area. And you need to know. So my wife and I, it's one of those, join my wife and me, you know, we were kind of the host and hostess of the trip. So we made sure, or tried, that those that were traveling with us knew, hey, watch your stuff. Be very guarded. Be very careful. Now, if someone doesn't, and and they get their passport or their wallet or whatever taken, they're a victim. They are not responsible for that crime. But there were things they could have done to reduce their chances of them being a victim of that crime. And, and despite where we were over the decades where we treated women incredibly unfairly. I think we should not be afraid to do that. All right, I'm going to jump into completely different waters in the next hour. I know Steve Scafidi took up various angles of this this morning, but I want to talk about the Christmas Day that President Trump had, but I want to do it in a very different way. Christmas Eve, this past Christmas Eve, was the 50th anniversary of an amazing moment in a horrible year. 1968, one of the worst years in American history, just a horrible, horrible year, that ended on a truly inspiring note 50 years ago. This was a pretty bad year in some ways. And it doesn't appear that we're going to end on a high note. In fact, there's just... I hate to borrow the media's term chaos, but things are certainly unsettled in Washington, D.C. right now. And that is leading to discord in the country, the financial markets, and so on. Oh, but to have a moment like we did 50 years ago. What was it? I'll share it with you, and could we have such a thing today? 1259 News Radio, WTMJ. Howdy, howdy, Badger State 109, Jerry Bader in for Jeff Wagner. So I'm going to set an over and under number, Kyle, and I want you to tell me in my ear if you're going to go over or under. So here's the scenario. My wife and I, completely atypical Christmas week. We normally do Christmas Eve meal, but our Christmas Eve was Saturday to accommodate our adult kids, so we had... Christmas Eve, prime rib, mashed potatoes, all of that on Saturday. Then, uh, I'm going to lose track here. Then we had my wife's family on Sunday. 
My wife and I then had Christmas Eve leftovers on Christmas Eve on the 24th, and my daughter's-in-law's another meal on Christmas Day. So I'm going to set the over-under on how many pounds I put on during all of that, Kyle, at five. Over or under? What do you think? Five pounds. (laughs) He absolutely nailed that. He's going to go under, but it feels like more. Well, it's a good thing this isn't uh, television, and you can't see how tight my jeans are right now. Holy cats, you nailed that perfectly, sir. It feels like about 8 to 10, the way things are fitting. And no, I have not had the uh, courage or perhaps temerity to step on a scale. I I vowed I'm not going to do that until Monday. Uh, See if I can kind of work through this. But man, it was all good, but holy cats. It's just it's crazy, crazy, crazy. All right, I want to uh, finish up on a topic from last hour. We were talking, and I do this because I really want to thank the listener who uh, drew my attention to this. I don't listen to country music these days. There was a time when I did. I just don't. I don't anymore. And uh, it was the topic from the Kenosha School District about some parents were concerned that an assignment tried to pin the blame on sexual assault victims. So a listener drew my attention to the song Drunk Girl by Chris Jansen. And the person texting said, this sums it up. It does. I want to just share the first two verses and the refrain. A couple of cover charge stamps got her hand looking like a rainbow in and out of every bar and a wind just like uh, whim just like the wind blows. She's either a bachelorette or coming off a breakup. Take a drunk girl home. She's bouncing like a pinball, singing every word she ever knew, dancing with her eyes closed like she's the only one in the room. Her hair is a perfect mess, falling out of that dress. Take a drunk girl home, and then the refrain. Take a drunk girl home, let her sleep all alone. Leave her keys on the counter, your number by her phone. Pick up her life she threw on the floor. Leave the hall lights on, walk out and lock the door. That's how she knows the difference between a boy and a man. Take a drunk girl home. The texter shared that when folks were saying, well, what about the, what about the guy? Why are we talking about the girl or whatever case, the victim? Why not the behavior of the guy? I was not familiar with that song. Again, I don't listen to country music these days, so I do appreciate the listener passing that along. So, you may be aware of this. I mentioned it a few moments ago, but it did get some news coverage. December 24th, in addition to being Christmas Eve, was the anniversary of a, of a really fascinating event, the 50th anniversary. December 1968, for the first time, human beings left the influence of Earth orbit as three astronauts, Frank Borman, Bill Anders, and Milwaukee native Jim Lovell, long before his Apollo 13 fame, well, about a year before, actually, a year and a half, were the first three men to fly to the moon. That meant they were the first three men to see the Earth from a distance. And to mark that moment, NASA told them, do whatever you want, but make it appropriate to the moment. What they chose to do 
was share the first ten verses of the book of Genesis, the creation story. That broadcast was beamed all over the world, and it is seen as a brief unifying moment, particularly in the United States, in what was a horrific, horrific, horrific year. The country was split in half over the Vietnam War. There was strife everywhere. And for that brief moment in time, it seemed, all of that was set aside. So here's a thought. I don't know if it's a question. It could be a question. It's at least, at minimum, a thought. Is this, for the United States, the most divisive year since 1968, 50 years ago? And could we today ever have such a unifying moment? I will explore that in a couple of minutes. 115 News Radio WTMJ. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you. 118 News Radio WTMJ. Jerry Bader in for Jeff Wagner here for the rest of the week. And the rest of the week, of course, almost sees 2018 come to a close. That will happen early next week. And it's been one of those years. 50 years ago was one of those years, perhaps one of the worst America's ever seen. Two assassinations, Dr. King. Senator Robert Kennedy, just a horrific Democratic National Convention in Chicago, violence, protests around the country over the Vietnam War. The Tet Offensive started things off in, what was it, late January 1968 during the Vietnam War. Start to finish nearly just a miserable year, with the exception on Christmas Eve when the Apollo 8 astronauts read from the Bible, and it just seemed a moment to take a pause. As you look at the last week, you just wonder, and I don't, I'm going to be perfectly candid with you. I'm not exactly going anywhere with this other than just making an observation, but if you feel compelled to weigh in, you can certainly do that at the Accudet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, 414-799-1620. I'm trying to imagine what could unite people today. You look at the last week or so, there is a shutdown. There's a government shutdown. I, I don't want to get into the debate over the wall. What I will say, as Steve covered that this morning, what I will say is this. President Trump owns this shutdown. It's his. He's trying to offload it to Democrats. There's no chance of that happening because in that, and I said it was a mistake at the time, that televised, whatever that thing was, ostensibly a negotiation session, with Schumer and Pelosi, he proudly took it. I'll take ownership of it. Yeah, you can't give that back. So, yes, this is President Trump's shutdown. That's the first thing. Then you had a disastrous attempt by Mnuchin, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, where they essentially, or I should say he, asked banks a question no one was asking about liquidity. That panicked investors. What's Mnuchin asking about bank liquidity for? Is that a problem? As, uh, and I don't recall who said it. I, I would love to give full credit. I just can't think of who said it. That's like saying our space defense shields can handle in any incoming disastrous asteroids. Wait a minute. There's 
murderous asteroids coming? Should I be worried about them? Well, nobody was worried about that. Until <laughs> Mnuchin asked banks about liquidity, and all the banks say there's no reason to be concerned about Well, what did you bring it up for? That actually tanked markets. Talk of President Trump firing Federal Reserve Board Chairman Jerome Powell, which now, over the Sunday shows, we and it was tweeted that, no, he can't fire Powell. All of those things created uncertainty. Firing Mattis after Mattis resigned, it was going to be there through February. There's instability, there's uncertainty, unpredictability really rattles the markets. The president continues to blame Powell. Uh, uh, oh, yeah, we can do that. Uh, absolutely. Uh, we'll get to all of this in just a minute. 121 News Radio WTMJ. Thank you, Jerry. We are following some breaking news from the WTMJ Breaking News Center. The president and the first lady are now in Iraq. President Trump secretly flying overseas along with the first lady to visit with troops in Iraq. We're going to go live now to New York to get the very latest on the story. President Trump in the Middle East from ABC News. This is a special report from ABC News. President Trump making an unannounced visit to the Al-Assad Air Base in western Iraq, meeting with troops stationed there a day after Christmas. Traveling with the President First Lady Melania, also National Security Advisor John Bolton, it's the first time President Trump has visited U.S. troops stationed at a base in a cl- located in a conflict region. Sarah Sanders, Press Secretary for the White House, confirming that the President and the First Lady traveled to Iraq late on Christmas night. Again, the President making an unannounced visit to Iraq meeting with troops today. I'm Michelle Franz, and this has been a special report from ABC News. Hey, we'll have more details throughout the day right here on WTMJ, WTMJ News Time 122. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Good time. Indeed, we do. 125 News Radio WTMJ, Jerry and for Jeff. So, as we have the news uh, break in there, a President Trump surprise. Visit to Iraq, President Trump and Melania Trump greeted members of the United States military in a dining hall at Al-Assad Air Base in an unannounced trip to Iraq. One of the things for which he'd been criticized is not uh, visiting war zone type situations. I was discussing, can there be a unifying moment? And then we get that news, which actually uh, it's, he should be applauded for doing that. It's one of the things for which, as I said, he had been criticized. What I was talking about is all of the things that happened in the last week up to this, and I'm going to share a little more on this story in just a moment, is just, it it seemed the media was painting the story of just complete chaos, and quite frankly, wasn't all that far from being true. There was just a lot of, uh, and a lot of it, quite honestly, was at the hands of the president. Now, Let me just quickly talk about the markets, which, of course, are through the roof today, probably some bargain hunting going on. uh, But after bad session after bad session after bad session, up over 600 points last time I looked. But in terms of what caused the most recent drop in the market, look, raising rates, yes, that has an impact. Yes, perhaps it's being done a little too aggressively, but that's somewhat baked in the cake. It didn't surprise investors. Things that surprise investors. And President Trump has done a lot of things to surprise investors or people within his administration. That volatility, if you will, 
or that uncertainty, I think, led to market volatility more than the interest rates. But no, nothing in this world happens for just one reason. But it seemed as though we were careening to the end of the year. And just the country is divided as ever, probably since it was 50 years ago. And I was asking, was there a moment that Apollo 8 read the Bible from the moon moment that seemed to unify people at least until the first of the year 1969. And I don't, I'm not saying the visit to Iraq will do that, but it's just ironic that, the, you know, as I'm discussing that, we get word more from the New York Times. President Trump visited American military forces in Iraq on Wednesday, a surprise trip, and the first visit to troops stationed abroad in a combat zone by a commander-in-chief who has made withdrawing the U.S. from foreign wars a signature issue. The trip, shrouded in secrecy, came in the midst of a government shutdown in less than a week after Mr. Trump disrupted America's military status quo and infuriated even some of his staunchest political allies by announcing plans to withdraw troops from Syria and about half of those stationed in Afghanistan. That decision on Syria, made over the objections of American military generals and civilian advisors, led to the resignation of Mr. Trump's Defense Secretary Jim Mattis and fueled tensions within the national security establishment, mainly that the president is going to act entirely on impulse. The place Mr. Trump chose to visit is the one theater of the war where he has not promised a rapid drawdown of forces, and it is where he claims his greatest military victory the defeat of the Islamic State in Mosul, the Iraqi city, where the group's leader uh, declared the beginning of its self-proclaimed caliphate. The assault on Mosul by Iraqi forces, backed by Americans, began under President Barack Obama, but culminated in the summer of 2017 under President Trump. Visiting troops, of course, as the Times writes, a cherished tradition for presidents, and it goes back a long, long way. And again, it was, he took a lot of heat for this, especially what happened in Paris, canceled a rainy day visit to an American cemetery, hadn't visited a combat zone. I understand, so the response is going to be, well, yeah, of course, he's just doing this, but it's long overdue, and it's about time. All right, I am often critical of the president, there's no doubt about that. Yes, it was overdue, and he's done it. And I just don't agree with, criticizing someone for not doing something and then criticizing them when they do it, which is what I'm guessing the media will do here. In this case, I will not. I think it was appropriate. Yes, it should have happened sooner, but it was appropriate nonetheless. Uh, we're going to go in a different direction after the news. I, I can't even begin to set it up. All I can say is it's really, really creepy. I don't know what else to say about it. 136 News Radio WTMJ. Jerry Bader in for Jeff Wagner. Earlier I mentioned I've been overeating since Saturday. Sadly, that's not an exaggeration. And wondering, I have not had the, the courage to step on the scale. Jeff in Fox Point offered some advice. Jumping rope helps. I'd be job of the hut with, without mine. I am a jogger. And I'm going to try to hit the treadmill. I don't know. It might even be outside weather. We'll see. You know, running outside. Of course, it's outside weather. You know what I mean? Running outside weather. All right. I don't know really where this is going to go, but I'm going to share it with you. 
And if you have any reaction to it, we, we certainly uh, would entertain your thoughts. And the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Tax Line, 414-799-1620. Need a little setup on this, though, because not everybody watches the show or watched the show. The show in question is House of Cards. This next minute or so is for those of you who did not watch the show. Before I do that, though, before I do that, I want to tell you, after 2 o'clock, there's a story in the Journal Sentinel and JS Online today about what Milwaukee's going to have to do to get the Democratic National Convention, what will soon be next year, 2020. I have a question for you after 2 o'clock. So one of the attractive things about that is showcasing the city. Is Milwaukee ready for its close-up? Is Milwaukee ready to be showcased? I'm not saying it isn't. I'm asking if it is. We will take your calls on that after two. But first this. So, House of Cards, a Netflix original series. I got hooked on it by my former boss. And it was brilliant. It was brilliantly written. I'm going to do the, try to do this in about two minutes. Kevin Spacey played... I believe it was South Carolina Congressman Frank Underwood. The series opens with him getting gypped out of Secretary of State. He supported a candidate for president with the understanding if that guy won, he would be Secretary of State. They didn't give it to him. He then goes on this revenge rampage, which which ends up with him being President of the United States. Brilliantly written show. One of the hallmarks of the show is... Kevin Spacey's character, Frank Underwood, what is called Breaking the Fourth Wall. Frank would talk to the audience. It was, it's really, I think, was, was what made the show. Spacey was brilliant in the way in which he did it. Of course, more recently, we've learned that Kevin Spacey is being accused of sexual assault. And on Christmas Eve, we learn that Spacey is facing a felony charge in an alleged sexual assault of the teenage son of former Boston television news anchor Heather uh, Unrah at a Nantucket bar in July 2016. The latest entanglement for the two-time Academy Award winner over claims of sexual misconduct. So he's now facing a felony charge. Then, and he'll be arraigned on January 7th. Then something bizarre happened. On Monday, Kevin Spacey dropped a YouTube video where he seemed to be denying the allegations against him as Kevin Spacey, the human being, the real person. But this is what made it creepy. He did it in character as Frank Underwood. He's in a kitchen with this Santa Claus apron on, sipping from a cup of coffee, and he's addressing the fourth wall, just as Frank Underwood did in House of Cards, but clearly he is addressing the sexual assault charge against him, Kevin Spacey, the actor. I'm going to have Kyle play this for you, and then I'm going to comment on it. Kyle, go ahead. I know what you want. 
Oh, sure, they may have tried to separate us, but what we have is too strong, it's too powerful. I mean, after all, we shared everything, you and I. I told you my deepest, darkest secrets. I showed you exactly what people are capable of. I shocked you with my honesty, but mostly I challenged you and made you think. And you trusted me, even though you knew you shouldn't. So we're not done, no matter what anyone says. And besides, I know what you want. You want me back. Of course, some believed everything and had just been waiting with bated breath to hear me confess it all. They're just dying to have me declare that everything said is true and that I got what I deserved. Wouldn't that be easy if it was all so simple? Only you and I both know it's never that simple, not in politics and not in life. But you wouldn't believe the worst without evidence, would you? You wouldn't rush to judgments without facts, would you? Did you? No, not you. You're smarter than that. Anyway, all this presumption made for such an unsatisfying ending. And to think it could have been such a memorable send-off. I mean, if you and I have learned nothing else these past years, it's that in life and art, nothing should be off the table. We weren't afraid, not of what we said, not of what we did, and we're still not afraid. Because I can promise you this. If I didn't pay the price for the things we both know I did do, I'm certainly not going to pay the price for the things I didn't do. Well, of course, they're going to say I'm being disrespectful, not playing by the rules like I ever played by anyone's rules before. I never did, and you loved it. Anyhow, despite all the poppycock, the animosity, the headlines, the impeachment without a trial, despite everything, despite even my own death, I feel surprisingly good. And my confidence grows each day that soon enough you will know the full truth. Wait a minute. Now that I think of it, you never actually saw me die, did you? Conclusions can be so deceiving. Miss me? If you were not a watcher of House of Cards, he's referring to his character who was killed off, Frank Underwood, and then Claire Underwood, became, well, she became president even before uh, the revelations of the allegations against him. So who was he talking about? Was he talking about the character, Frank Underwood, the accused actor, Kevin Spacey, or both? And how disturbing, one, is this disturbing? And two, if it is, how disturbing is it? I will address as much of that as I can in a couple of minutes here, and you can feel free to weigh in as well on the Accident Mortgage Talk and text line 414-799-1620. And what about the people who helped him produce that thing? 144 News Radio WTMJ. 147 News Radio WTMJ. Jerry in for Jeff talking about... Kevin Spacey, the 59-year-old actor, scheduled to be arraigned on a charge of indecent assault and battery, January 7th. 
in connection with the alleged assault of a then 18-year-old well, man, an 18-year-old is adult, on Monday, as apparently he knew he was going to be charged, he dropped this YouTube video clearly produced, he clearly didn't do it alone, called Let Me Be Frank, as in Frank Underwood. He is in character as Frank Underwood from the Netflix series House of Cards. He seems to be addressing Frank Underwood's situation when last we saw him, where he was booted out of office and manipulated by his wife, Claire, and then when the allegations against actor Kevin Spacey came out, the producers of Netflix wrote him out by killing him off. He seemed to be addressing that. He seemed to be addressing the real-life charges against him, which made this uber, uber creepy. To Jeff in Fox Point. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jerry. I think he's talking about both himself and Underwood, but I really just see this as a desperate attempt by him to try and resurrect his career after he got caught being a dirtbag. And I've, I've now gotten rid of all of my Blu-rays and DVDs that have him in it, even the usual suspects. And this really has not swayed me one bit into wanting to watch anything with him in it uh, ever again. How, let me, okay, so I, I gotta tell you, I did not consider that angle, Jeff. How do you think he thought this was going to resuscitate his career? Probably by making people want to watch, uh, House of Cards and then maybe put pressure and, and possibly, you know, saying, oh, House of Cards isn't, isn't finished yet. We're, we're gonna do another season. Well, you know, that's interesting because, and, and Jeff, thanks for the call. Uh, he was, uh, in the movie, I can't think of the title of the movie, All the Money in the World, I think is the title of it, about the Getty kidnapping, where they disappeared him. I mean, they recut it with a different actor because, and he played J. Paul Getty because they, they couldn't. This was right, that movie was set to be released very shortly after the allegations hit. Hollywood has done everything within its power to disappear him vanish him. Uh, Sam writes, Jerry, bizarre, but coming from Hollywood, not surprising. Tim writes, Frank Underwood was Bill Clinton in House of Cards. Now Kevin Spacey is blurring the lines in hopes that people will love to see him get away with it. Wow. These are all, these are just takes I hadn't considered on this. To Paul in New Hampshire. Paul, thanks for calling. You're on WTMJ. Hey, Jerry, when you first started playing that, I was really hoping it was Tim from Lubland, but dang. <laughs> hey, anyway, um, so I saw I saw the video over the weekend, and the first thing I thought about was the letter that Stacy put out when the allegations originally came to light, where he came out as a, as a gay man. Um, both of these things put together, just it, it makes me wonder what kind of just sick person he is and, and just how tone-deaf he is to the way that it was going to be received. And um, you, had, you had mentioned earlier about the people who helped produce him. It, it sounded mm-hmm. like the guys who uh, helped produce it, they didn't really know a whole lot about House of Cards or this or that. Um, the guy tweets about it, the director, and he mentioned that uh, when Spacey put that ring on in the video, obviously a reference to Frank, um, the guy said he wasn't expecting that, that Kevin really wanted to put that in. And the guy who produced it also said his girlfriend left him over the 
Wow. Well, see, now a couple of things there. Because Paul, thanks a lot for the call. First, I have to explain where Paul Paul said he thought it was Tim and Lublin. Tim, who you heard from earlier in the hour, if you were listening, longtime listener to my radio show when I was on in Green Bay, Sheboygan, Wausau. And Tim used to call the show, and he did a really good Frank Underwood, which we had to retire after the allegations came out because it just that didn't work anymore. But two things that Paul just pointed out that, that I think are really interesting. One, I, I just, I, I, I don't know how else to say this. I think Kevin Spacey really has a problem, and I'm not talking about, I'm going to be very clear here. Okay, I think he has a problem. This is just twisted. And what he did here is really weird. But I don't want to make it sound as though he has a problem which is, excuses the behavior I'm not you know, the, the, for which he's now charged with a crime. I am not suggesting that at all. But this is weird. And anyone who would facilitate this, I, 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 just, I don't know how anyone could be complicit in producing this video. It is just bizarre. Typical Hollywood elite, someone writes from the 414. Why does he think we care? They can't face reality. Hollywood is a sick group of people. Okay, I, I will take one phrase there. They can't face reality. I, I don't, I honestly don't know. Somehow this was therapeutic or carthetic for uh, Spacey, but I'm really not sure how. He knew, that. well, one, he knew we'd talk about it just because it's so bizarre. But two, you know, to a caller earlier, but I don't know if this is Paul's point, but uh, if one of the callers, it does put him back on the radar screen. Does he really think that he can come back from that? It's doubtful. And it, it, I, I must tell you, Kevin, Sp I was a fan. I think in all the work he did, his work on House of Cards was his finest work, in my opinion. He was utterly brilliant. And then we learn about the dark side. And we all have dark sides. But, boy, Kevin Spacey's dark side was really, really dark. Or is really, really dark. And honestly, as I started this segment, as how I finished this segment... I really don't know what my takeaway from that is. 154 News Radio WTMJ. So 156 News Radio WTMJ. Jerry in for Jeff. Hey, I'm going to give a quick plug here, and I'm going to set up the topic for the next hour. And Kyle, I'm totally messing with you on the outline. I'm just kind of winging this. Uh, <laughs> At this point, we're going to go to a different direction than, than what I had planned. And I will set that up in just a moment. But I want to give a plug. So Saturday night, as part of our early Christmas Eve, my family and I ventured out. I live in Green Bay, and uh, actually a Shawamana, not far from the stadium. We ventured out to the Titletown District. They had this uh, thing from the Titletown District, which is the new development across Ridge Road from Lambeau Field which is beautiful. They had this thing that they projected against uh, Lambeau Field Wall. It was a lot of fun. But, boy, is the Titletown District beautiful. I mean, at night, it's just it's gorgeous. They have the tubing hill. There's the skating rink now. It's just, i got to tell you, it is 
fabulous. And if you've not had a chance to check it out, this is a wonderful time of year to do it. It's well, the summer's great too, but it's really, really good. Which brings me to showcasing communities. So there is a a story I have to tell you. I I, I don't want to say sort of. I forgot about it. That Milwaukee is in contention for the 2020 Democratic National Convention. Totally forgot about that. They need a third-party entity to guarantee at least a $10 million line of credit, JS Online reports today, essentially serving as the backstop for the bid. Don't know if they're going to get that. Mayor Barrett says it ain't coming from property ta- or from city tax money. Property tax dollars. Not going to happen. I don't want to get too deep in the weeds on that particular element of the story, but Milwaukee is in contention. What I would say with two, I don't know, glamorous cities, that might not be the right word, but cosmopolitan cities, Houston and Miami. One of the big reasons you want this is to showcase your city. Here's going to be my question for you after the 2 o'clock news. Is Milwaukee ready for its close-up? Is Milwaukee, which has undergone something of a renaissance, is it ready for prime time, everybody looking at Milwaukee? Because that's really what you're looking for here. Is the city ready to be shown off? 159 News Radio, WTMJ. Third and final hour of the Jeff Wagnerless show. Jerry Bader in for Jeff. This is not the topic we're going to take up. I want to mention this just quickly, though, because hearing the talk of Packers and all of that, last week I asked the question uh, Who do you think will be next to win a championship? Brewers, Packers, or Bucks? I could ask this follow up question, and I may, not now, but I may ask this follow-up question later in the week. Which next year are you more excited about? We'll leave the Bucks out for a moment. The Brewers or the Packers? As a sports fan, if you're a big sports fan and you follow both teams, which one are you more excited about? Wait till next year, 2019. I will tell you, for me, it's the Brewers. And you know, we took calls last week, and it was a small market. They're not going to be able to sustain this. When you look at what the Brewers have done so far, I would say they're about a year ahead of their rebuilding program. I expected them to be you know, a game away from the World Series in 2019. Now, sometimes when you are a year ahead that way, you backslide, and I know that could happen, but I, I still think the Brain Trust is going to continue to add pieces And at the moment, I am far more geeked for the Brewers of 2019 than the Packers. I'm always excited for the Packers. Don't misunderstand. And I do think there are reasons to believe the Packers could have. Now, it's so early. Who knows? We're not even done with this season yet. But whatever happens when Detroit comes to Lambeau on Sunday, and I don't know what's going to happen, but whatever happens, whatever draft decisions the Packers make, free agency and so on. If they have Aaron Rodgers healthy next year, they have they have really helped the receiving core. Those kids are going to be a year older, and, and they could rebound. So I will likely get excited, but I am, 
I have been excited since Game 7 of the NLCS ended. I just, I, I really think the Brewers are reason for excitement, and I really have high hopes. Uh, again, anything could happen. Maybe we'll do that later in the week. One of this hour, let me set this up, and this is going to take me a few minutes to set up, okay? I want to set this up, and then I want to take calls. There are two stories at jsonline.com right now, and they are, I don't know if this is by design, honestly, I don't think it is, but they are related. Let me start with this one, and then I'll transition to the second story. This one posted 8 o'clock this morning. Five downtown area development hotspots to watch in 2019. And then they go through each one. The Harbor District emerging as the hottest spot for the broader downtown area, with two huge projects scheduled to begin construction in 2019. And then they talk about the Harbor District where it runs uh, between the historic Third Ward and Bayview with about a 1,000 acres bordered roughly by South First Street, the lakefront, the Milwaukee River, uh, Bay Street, Beecher Street, and talks about what the plans are for that. Then they move on to the high-rise uh, that will be starting, $122 million luxury apartment high-rise, cleared a major hurdle last month. Number three, the 25-story BMO Tower. Number four, the Avenue, that's the plans for the former Grand Avenue Mall's conversion into what's now being called the Avenue. Two major projects there, and then the Milwaukee Symphony's new home. So clearly, there are exciting things going on in Milwaukee. There, there's no question about that. From there, I transition to this. And I'm going to be honest, this is a story that i kind of forgotten about. Milwaukee's 2020 Democratic Convention bid hinges on guarantee of $10 million line of credit from a third party. That's what they need to make this go. At the moment, they do not have it. They are one of three contenders for the 2020 Democratic National Convention. They're looking for a third party entity to guarantee at least a $10 million line of credit, essentially serving as a backstop for the bid. Milwaukee Mayor Tom Barrett said he is confident the bid committee will be able to get the line of credit, quote-unquote, resolved. But he is not committing the city to that rule. The backstop wouldn't come into play until after the convention, and only then if the host committee falls short of fundraising and runs a deficit. So it's a rainy day fund, as it were. They basically want a security deposit, I guess for want of a better term, in case they don't get all the money they need. Could be as high as $20 million, but in Milwaukee's case, they're hoping $10 million would be enough. So Milwaukee, Miami Beach, and Houston are the three finalists for the convention that will be held July 13th through the 16th, 2020. Here's the question I have for you. So, so what's the appeal here? And this is expensive stuff all the way around. There are a lot of costs incurred. So what's the upside? Well, two things. The first upside is political, but I question really how much, how big a deal that is. Wisconsin will forever be seen as, or at least for the foreseeable future, a critical state in presidential politics. You saw that in 2016. Hillary Clinton, you want to talk about counting your cheeseheads before they're hatched. She thought she had that locked up. Nope. 
So it's going to be mission critical for Democrats in 2020 to try to claw back a state that they just assumed was theirs. Florida, ever important. Texas, Democrats seem to believe that Texas is coming into play, especially the close Senate race there. A lot of people think Ted Cruz is not very liked, even by allies. I don't know. Beto O'Rourke now being seen as this rising superstar. And if, in fact, he were, and I don't know that he's going to, but if he's going to be a contender for the Democratic nomination, that would make Texas attractive. So you have the political. That doesn't do much for the city. But that's the, you know, it would do a lot for Wisconsin is the belief, but I just don't know if there's a lot of evidence to suggest that your state hosting a party convention does all that much good. I, I don't know. I haven't researched it. I'm just saying I don't know. So what is in it for the city? You don't make a boatload of money. on You don't make any money on this. I mean, it's an expensive venture. But you are hoping that there's forward equity in that investment. What I mean by that is this. You showcase the city. The city is highlighted for the several days of the convention. I have never covered a Democratic National Convention. I have covered a Republican National Convention. Uh, 2012 in Tampa. Tampa, of course, already a high-profile city. Milwaukee is nationally, I think, seen as one of the former great American cities. I'm just saying what I think the national perception is. Don't get me wrong. Obviously, population decline, other things in the news nationally for things we'd rather not be in the news for, and so on. So here's the question I have for you, and I don't know what the inclination is. I'm just throwing it out there. Is Milwaukee ready for that exposure? Let me tell you what I mean by that. I know I'm going a little long on the segment, but let me just... For example, for many years, I was what's called a brand manager of a radio station. When I first got there in 2004, I wanted to advertise. I wanted to market. And my boss said, you're not ready. Okay, We brought you in to improve the radio station. Before you draw people to the radio station, you need to improve it. You need to make it a better product then we can tell people about it. We brought you in to improve the programming of the radio station. Once we accomplish that, then we're willing to invite people in the door, but not until you get the renovations done. You're not ready yet to tell people about you, about you, the station. You're just you're not ready for that. So we waited a couple of years, then we did some marketing, and you could debate forever what kind of impact it had. Is Milwaukee ready? Is Milwaukee ready to be showcased? If we want to reintroduce people for the, to the city of Milwaukee, is Milwaukee ready for that exposure? Will three, four days of national media coverage, is Milwaukee as a city ready to benefit from that? I'm not saying it isn't. I'm asking you if it is. I actually do not have an answer to offer here. I'm looking to see what, de- what WTMJ listeners think. And you can let us know at the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, 414-799-1620-219, News Radio WTMJ. 222, News Radio WTMJ, Jerry and for Jeff. Boy, I thought this was a slam dunk or any. I thought anyone 
I can hear the sound of my voice in southeast Wisconsin would have an opinion on this. So far, the phones are dark. Silencio. So I will give you another shout-out. 414-799-1620 on the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. JS Online has the story today talking about the a third party would have to come up with a $10 million line of credit basically to ensure for the, a Democratic National Convention to land in Milwaukee in 2020, Miami Beach in Houston, the other two contenders. As I said earlier, there are political reasons that, that are often offered why a city should get the convention, and I think that's going to be probably the card played where Milwaukee is concerned. Hillary Clinton, obviously at her own peril, ignored Wisconsin, thinking it was money in the bank, and it didn't work out that way. The city certainly doesn't make any money on these conventions, so what is seen as the upside for the city is to showcase the city. What I'm asking you is, is Milwaukee ready for the glare of that spotlight, for that tight close-up? I heard something once that I thought was very profound. Advertising accelerates the inevitable. In other words, if you have a good product and you advertise, you will become successful more quickly. If you have an inferior product and you advertise, bad things will happen more quickly. So I guess I'm trying to apply that to Milwaukee. Do you think Milwaukee is ready to benefit from that type of exposure? Has the city made progress to where it can be showcased in a way that will benefit the city, increase tourism to the city, three or four days of that spotlight? Hey, I really should check out Milwaukee. Now, if they cut a break, its two major league sports franchises will be continue to be doing well by that point, but we don't know that. I throw it out to you. So far, there is very little interest in this. I thought, I, you know, I've been doing this since 2001 with a slight break the last few months, and it's interesting. Uh, I, I never know what exactly is going to work in terms of what people are thinking. But we'll give it another shot. 414-799-1620. To Mike in Bayview. Mike, hi, you're WTMJ. Hi, how are you doing? Hi, how are you doing? Uh, Good. I, I, I think that I think our city's ready. I think that uh, between the third ward and Bayview, especially Bayview, has just been going nuts down there. And I think that you know, then we got the new arena or the new uh, you know forum. And I think mm-hmm. um, you know with the hotels, uh, we're building hotels and and uh, the way we're, you know the, the construction has gone just crazy. I think uh, maybe you know we are ready. You know, I, I think it's time that maybe we show, show some of this stuff off. Because they had that boat that was done by the, um, that came in here from Germany, and those people were really impressed with our city when they came in. Uh, they had that boat by, um, by the, uh, Express uh, that came in there. They were uh, they were a tourist uh, thing, and they were you know it was a German um, I don't know what the heck you want to call it. Uh, they were they were tourists, you know, from Germany, and they loved our city. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think that we have a lot to be proud of in Milwaukee. You know that the way things have come along. But I'm telling you, Bayview has just Bayview has just gone crazy, and the third ward has gone crazy. I think that you know that and there's, there's so much 
stuff, you know, to do now, you know. And I think that, uh, I think that we have a, we have a lot to be proud of here in Milwaukee, downtown and everything else, you know. We really Mike, thanks a lot for the call. Appreciate it. So here's the question, I guess. Here's how I should ask it. Does Milwaukee have a story to tell? And what will the story be that the media wants to tell about Milwaukee if they get this, if Milwaukee gets this exposure? 414-799-1620. 226 News Radio WTMJ. 229 News Radio WTMJ. Jerry Bader and for Jeff Wagner. We're going to give this one more try in the next segment. I've got other things to get to, including interesting story in the JSOnline.com about how a serious problem speeding is statewide, as, as the DOT is talking about the different problems. But I want to give this one more segment, I, I, because I think it's interesting, and I don't know, it might be because I'm not, and I'm not going to. I'm not going to offer an opinion on this. I am trying to take the pulse of southeast Wisconsin. Milwaukee, one of three cities vying for the Democratic National Convention and all the media attention that would come with that in 2020. Is the city ready to be showcased. Don't read skepticism into that question. I want to know what you think. I'm a goofball from Green Bay. I want to know what you think. Good girl and good little boy. Santa's a great big bun. 235 News Radio WTMJ. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Jerry Bader in for Jeff Wagner. And... Uh, Again, I don't have an opinion on this. I don't live in Milwaukee. I don't live in southeast Wisconsin. It's possible, as Milwaukee is one of three finalists for the Democratic National Convention in 2020, that it would spend several days in the national spotlight. Is Milwaukee ready for that kind of attention in terms of benefit, benefiting Excuse me from it and drawing people here? Not saying it isn't, and I know there seems to be skepticism implied in the question. There, there truly isn't. I'm, I'm trying to find out what the locals think. Kevin from Fox Point. Kevin, you're on WTMJ. Oh, hey, this is uh, Kevin Fox Point. Um, I think that Milwaukee's got a lot going for it, um, and I think that it's one of the best-kept secrets of uh, the Midwest. Uh, I think what we've done with the park system, how we've built up a little bit around the lakefront, um, I think our business community is thriving. And I also think that we've done a great job of being a purple state, uh, balancing between what the Democrats and the Republicans want to do um, in Milwaukee. I think um, I think it's a really good place to showcase uh, a great town in the Midwest that uh, has a lot to do yet, but is is really uh, something special in the Midwest. You said something to the effect that it's a well-kept secret. So, Kevin, here's what I'm wondering. If it's a well-kept secret, what is the story that it has to tell? Because my concern is that there's a story out there, the mainstream media, the national media is going to want to tell about Milwaukee, and it's not necessarily positive. It has a reputation of being one of the most segregated cities in America. My concern is, what is the positive story that it has to tell, and can we get the media to tell that story if this were to happen for Milwaukee? Yeah, I would say that uh, the story to tell is that we're a, a strong community that uh, values our neighbors, that welcomes other people in. Uh, we have some of the best hospitality in the United States with what we do with all our festivals around the lakefront, 
um, how we uh, attract people from throughout the Midwest to come and visit our city. Um, and I think, you know, we might, you might want to say we're segregated. I say that we're, um, you know, culturally, um, you know, um, concentrated. I think we have uh, our, 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 you might say um, we're segregated. I think we're diverse. And I think that um, our African-American community, our Hispanic community on our South side, uh, that's not segregated. That's showing that people um, come together from different cultures. And I think all of Milwaukee celebrates those cultures. Kevin, thanks a lot for the call. I, I, what I'm what I'm getting at, though, is the city does have a reputation, and you know there are the improvements and there are the warts. And my concern is the media may want to focus on the warts. That's that's the concern that I have there. All right. I want to go in a different direction in a few minutes here. And let me set this up. If I was going to set this up, I probably should have dug into my pile here a little earlier, huh? But I didn't. That's okay, because I can wing this for a moment. Actually, I found the story. Uh, You also heard this uh, uh, on WTMJ, if you were listening earlier today. Wisconsin has plenty of speeders and unlicensed drivers, but the news isn't all bad. The DOT basically giving their year-end review uh, the first six months of 2018, actually, on the good and the bad on Wisconsin's roads. And the thing that gets all the attention in this story are speeders. Now, obviously, there are sections of I-41, I-43, other chunks of road in Wisconsin where a couple of years ago the speed limit went up to 70 miles an hour. I was a fan. I am a fan. I will confess that I set the cruise at 78 miles an hour when the speed limit is 70. I find that about the perfect sweet spot, not quite, but nearly perfect. These days, it it keeps me mostly in the right lane, the occasional passing of a vehicle. Otherwise, I I mean, we were on I-43, headed to Manitowoc on Sunday, and my wife and I just marveled. I, again, had the cruise set at 78 and, boom, boom, I mean, they cars just blowing by. Already have a text on this. Justin writes, I don't think it's just speed that's the problem, but more specifically the growing number of reckless, fearless drivers who will, who will do outrageous, dangerous maneuvers to circumvent stop signs and traffic signals and or attempt to maintain an imprudent speed when weather, traffic, and construction warrant otherwise. I think Justin's nailed it. And I'm going to get to that in a couple of minutes. I think he's got it exactly right. 241 News Radio WTMJ. 243 News Radio WTMJ. I have a couple of texts on this already, and I absolutely would love your calls on this because I agree with these two texters. 414-799-1620. Speeding, I don't think, is the big issue in Wisconsin right now. It is unhinged, aggressive driving, and I'm not sure what's driving that driving. I've been talking about this for a couple of years now. People are, for want of a better term, I think of the uh, movie Groundhog Day with Bill Murray, Don't Drive Angry. Boy, people are driving angry. The story in the Journal Sentinel points out the speeding. I have to be honest. 
where they've upped it to 70 miles an hour, I'm a fan. I think it's just fine. I don't think it's causing any particular problems. Then again, I don't have statistics in terms of increased accidents. I think any increased accidents, people feeling that if they get stopped at a red light, they're going to be there for the rest of their natural lives. I've got to blow through this thing right now. And you see that more and more and more. I'm going to finish Justin's point. Dangerous maneuvers to circumvent stop signs and traffic signals and or to attempt maintain imprudent speeds when weather, traffic, and other conditions warrant otherwise. I just can't fathom why so many want to risk injuries and wrecking their expensive vehicles and causing delays and driving up their insurance. It seems to be getting worse every day. Stephen Kenosha writes, Jerry, I drive a gas tanker. You should see how many times a day I get cut off by people who don't care even though I've got explosives behind me. This, I think, is the real problem. It's, I I, I see it, my wife and I discuss this all the time. The office building I work at in the Green Bay area, in Ashwabanon, if you're familiar with that area at all, on Nida Street, and my office is nestled in that area uh, between Vanderperen and Hanson Road. So I need to cross on night. It's, it's just crazy nuts. People, there are times you have to sit and wait for two, three, four cars making a left turn long after the red light is there. People cutting you off more. I, I just, to me, it's as though everyone on the road has itching powder under their skin. People seem more impatient than ever. I have blamed this on the instant gratification that is brought to us by digital devices. We get almost everything else, literally, as we call it, on demand these days, and people seem to think that should apply behind the wheel of an automobile as well. I mean, it's always been a problem, and I'm not saying it hasn't. I just feel it's accelerating, and I'm not talking about the speed. Oh, yeah, people are driving faster, and when you combine the two... When you get those people who just I feel like it's as though they're saying to themselves, what are all these other cars doing on the road? That's what I think is the real problem. To Jeff in Pewaukee, Jeff Heyer on WTMJ. This is a great topic, and, it, it, and it's a daily topic for me because I do a lot of driving. And just last night, driving from the airport to basically the zoo interchange, at least mm-hmm. a dozen or more cars came right around my car cut in front of me, no no signals, they don't need to do that. And I'm the same guy, I'm 8 to 10 over, okay, weather permitting. But if we really want to clean this up, the tickets have to become expensive, no negotiating in court, and if you don't pay your ticket, your car, you, you, don't, you don't have your car. So that avoids people not paying tickets. But it's, it's, it's out of hand beyond. I, I've never seen it so bad in my whole life. Take Silver Spring. From 41, you, you forget it. You're, you're going to watch people go through red lights all day. And if you're not paying attention, you're going to be the loser on that end. It's just crazy. I, but you would agree that it's getting, that this is progressively worse, right? Uh, it, there is no question in my mind it's progressively worse. And the thing is, people have no regard for anyone else. They're, they're the most important person on the road. You're in my way. What are you doing there? And they go around you. They don't even allow much room for them to pass you on a safe, you know, safe basis. They're they're taking feet in front of your your bumper at 80, 85 miles an hour. 
and I, I just I, I'm blown away by it. And there isn't a lot of presence on the freeway. I would think that if someone blows by the 85, eventually I'm going to see them pulled over, and I don't. They're gone. No blinkers, Jeff. That that you know what a great point that is. You know what I think of when I do see someone pulled over. It's like, man, how fast were you going? <laughs> oh, <laughs> that they actually stopped you. I actually think they'd have a hard time catching them because if they were stopped under a bridge and they had to pull out in traffic, I think that person's gone. And I think that might be the motivation to go that fast because that's traveling, you know, 140, 80 miles an hour is 140 feet per second. That's a hard distance to catch up when you have to merge into traffic. They just need more police presence on the road. I, I mean, I, I, there's 12 different cars from, what, 10 miles? 12 different cars. And that's just me. Jeff, thank, what happened uh, after Jeff, that? Appreciate it. Thanks a lot for the call. I uh, want to get to some other calls here. 414-799-1620. I will tell you that I have taken this topic up on the radio several times in the last couple of years. And I, there is something where people, I, I refer to it as driving angrier, more aggressively, less considerate. Take your pick. But it's getting worse, and I think it's, you know, we have a texture. People only think about themselves and everything they do now. One, sadly, while perhaps an overgeneralization, not a dramatic overgeneralization, but two, I, I really think it's, well, I can press a button on my phone. I can do this, do that. Everything is instant, automatic. Get all these cars out of my way. I should be on the road alone. What's the matter with you? To Mike in Germantown. Mike, go ahead. Yeah, good afternoon. Uh, I think the problem's related to the Me Too movement, but with driving, it's called Me First. Mm-hmm. Um, I, <laughs> I don't know how else to explain it. I'm just amazed how many stupid people are on the road doing stupid things, and the sad part is they don't even know it. They, they well, you, that, great point. Great point they, on self-awareness, Mike. They must have uh, all graduated from Weaver's driving school because they they weave around to whichever lane is convenient <laughs> i had never heard that one before mike thanks a lot for the call i'm sure it's an oldie but a goodie but i i had never heard it before uh, we can sneak in a couple more calls coming up here 414-799-1620 and the acunet mortgage talk and text line 251 news radio wtmj 254 News Radio WTMJ. Journal Sentinel of JS Online has a story today about speeding being a serious problem. I agree. I've got a number of texts and calls on this that aggressive, dangerous, reckless driving, people just literally risking life, limb, and vehicle to get where they're going because they, I don't know, they didn't allow themselves enough time, whatever. Tom in Franklin has an interesting observation on this. Tom, go ahead. Hi, guys. Um, I just wanted to make a little bit of a contrarian point that, well, on the freeways, I don't think it's a big deal for people to be going 80, 85. Uh, If they're in the left lane, they should be able to pass traffic that's moving slower. I think the biggest issue is people that are distracted by their phones or um, other things that they do in the car when they shouldn't be doing them. But... Ultimately, if they're able to, you know, get over and drive at a consistent speed in the middle lane or the right lane, let the people that want to go fast go by, then you won't have people bunched up, you won't have people weaving, passing on the right. 
um, and this aggressive driving you're describing. I absolutely agree people drive way too fast in neighborhoods and places that are residential. But when it comes to the freeways, I see the bigger issue is distracted driving and people hanging out in the left lane when they should just get over and let the faster traffic pass. Tom, thanks a lot for the very good call. I appreciate that. And you see this. I see people texting at 75, 80 miles an hour, and it's terrifying. And I, and I would agree with Tom that I don't think the two things are mutually exclusive. I think you, you have a situation where people aren't watching what they're doing. Here's the thing that has terrified me. Seeing someone going 45, 50 miles an hour on the freeway because they're texting. It's just, it, it's terrifying. That's, and believe me, we could take a whole separate segment on that someday, and maybe we will. But I, I that, absolutely. But to the point that a lot of uh, texters have been making, there are aggressive drivers in the left and right lanes on the freeway. They want to get ahead of you, the next driver, etc. Many drivers are rude and aggressive because they want to be first. And just rude drivers. It, it it really is as though they think they should have the freeway to themselves. Let me give you an example. A regular route that I travel that's a pretty busy route. There's some highway travel involved. There, I have occasion to drive it very early in the morning. And then later in the morning at other times... All right, very early in the morning, there's very, very few vehicles. It's great. It seems like a lot of people want to drive that way all the time. And I I don't have an answer to this, but I do think it's a trend that's going in the wrong direction, that people are being ruder, more aggressive, which is a result more reckless and more dangerous. And one caller said more law enforcement. I just don't know if that's the whole answer. But we're not going to solve it here. So we will turn over the reins to John McCure and see what's up after three. 